know, every project is different. We are not a one-size-fit-all company. And we're under the microscope every day. We're, we, we're successful one cheeseburger at a time, one round of golf at a time, you know, one made bed at a time, one happy customer at a time. Hello, and welcome to the Golf.com podcast. I'm your host today, Coleman McDowell, an associate editor at Golf.com. And this morning, we sat down with Josh Lesnick, who is president of Kemper Sports, a golf course management company. Their portfolio has some of the biggest names in golf, Band and Dune, Streamsong, Chambers Bay, and in all, they'll operate more than 100 courses across the U.S. Josh is a big part of that. He's president of the company. His father... Steve co-founded the company back in 1978, and Josh's credentials run the gamut. He was the first general manager out at Bandon Dunes when it opened. He serves on the board of directors for the Chicago District Golf Association and the first tee of Greater Chicago. In short, he is as golfy as they come. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So Josh, here in New York City, it is a snowstorm. It's the middle of March. There is not much golf being played out here. So my first question to you is, what is the last round of golf you played? The last round of golf I played, uh, I believe, was at Streamsong, at the Streamsong Invitational uh, in January, right before the PGA show. That's nice. Yeah, you you, you got to head down to Florida while when you're living in Chicago, I suppose, in uh, January. Oh, that's right. And, and you know, we've started that great event down there. Uh, really, uh, you know, the owners wanted to start this event, you know, right around the PGA show, which is great. It's a pro-am format and clubs from all over the country have now, you know, bought a foursome and it's sold out now. And actually exciting because we're going to be able to expand it next year because we're opening the black course oh yeah we were actually down after the show so i guess the weekend after and i mean the weather was just perfect it when you come back up to new york and you're wearing you know your mittens and your scarves and everything like that it's nice just to wear a golf shirt out of the golf course and just play some golf in the middle of january um well not only that you know to be able to play that kind of golf in january i don't know that there's another place that you can combine that weather and then firm and fast conditions with, you know, that style of golf. Uh, I don't know that there's really anywhere else in the country you can do it in January and February and March. True. And and people people talk about Streamsong like it's so remote, but, I mean, it's not that far from the Tampa airport. So, I mean, if you're on the East Coast, you can leave in the morning and be playing in the afternoon. Absolutely. Yeah, it's one of those where you can easily, you know, even from Chicago and, you know, we fly fly down in the morning to Tampa or Orlando, frankly. I mean, it's only an hour and 15 from Orlando and basically just an hour from Tampa Airport. And you can, you know, get at least 18 holes in that day, 36, stay one more night, play 18, and you're home for dinner. I mean, it's really <laughs> convenient. So we're so we're definitely going to get to Streamsong here in a second, and you've got a, a lot of interesting courses and and the works with Kemper Sports. But I kind of wanted to start where where your story kind of starts, and that's obviously at Band of Dunes. And I read uh, Dream Golf recently, the the really great Stephen Goodwin book about the creation of Bandon, and you're a main part in Chapter 14. That's kind of where you uh, you enter in the pick picture and to set the scene for everyone. You're 29, you're recently married, you just had a first kid, you bought a house in Chicago, 
in September of 97, the book says, and Mike Kaiser calls you up and wants you to move out to Oregon. And the the book goes into great detail about your first site visit there and in the in your role in the creation of Bandon. So sitting here in 2017, you know, 20 years later, what do you remember about that first site visit out to Bandon? Well, I, rem- I remember, I, I definitely remember, um, you know, standing on the site, basically where 16 Green and 17 T are today, and looking out at the ocean and looking south down to what I didn't know, what, but it was the town abandoned and the and the big sea stack rocks that are out there, and just thinking this is this is incredible. This is incredibly special, and that's sort of when it hit me like this is this is special. I got to be a part of this. Um. So looking back now, what what advice would you give 29-year-old Josh as he's going into this in such a major endeavor? What looking back kind of what would you have have liked to know then that you know now? I'm glad I didn't know any. If I knew how big Bandon was going to get, I probably wouldn't have taken the job because I wouldn't have thought I could do it. Um but I think the best advice um, and I, and I think I, I did a good job of it, hopefully right from the beginning was, you know, listen to Mike Kaiser and I had several other advisors within Kemper sports as well, but really, you know, it, it, it's Mike's vision and he's such a special guy to work for and a neat guy to work for. It's just, you know what, listen to him. Listen to Jim Seeley was another guy. He worked for Kemper sports at the time and had a lot of experience uh, opening golf courses and managing golf courses and really just listen to the people that above you that know what they're doing. That's interesting that you say that you might not have taken it if you knew what a, you know, a giant that Bandon was going to become in the golf world because the the first course and then the second course and, you know, now they they have the, the, the punch bowl and the and the par three that it's it's a it's a great spot and so so I guess you're saying that you weren't necessarily you w- might have been intimidated by the project but since you go out there and you kind of have free reign to create something from nothing maybe let your creative juices flow a little bit over the process of those first couple of years oh, for sure and that you know uh, frankly it's part of Mike Kaiser's brilliance you know it, it started as a very small thing in fact you know he at one time said, hey, Josh, this could be a folly. This could be Mike's folly. I could be building this golf course out here, and m- maybe no one will come. We don't know. Um, so it really started small as just a, you know, imagine just going out there opening one golf course. Now, we started to build some infrastructure, and when, when we finally got everything open that first year, you know, we had one golf course we had our lodge, which had 21 rooms in it, and then we had 48. Uh, you might have stayed in the, the Lily Pond cottages, so we had 48 rooms there. So we really opened with about 70 rooms, and many of them had two beds. So, you know, call it 100 and, 120 beds, something like that. So, you know, it ended up being, you know, even that first year and with how successful we were, it became a, little bit bigger than we thought it would, and then it just grew from there. The story of Bandon is one of a, a really cool success story, starting from nothing into what it's grown now. But looking back over its creation, is there 
something that you can can pinpoint as a a mistake that you made along the way maybe something that you would do different if you could if you could do it over again you know i don't know that there's one huge glaring thing or anything i'm sure i made a lot of mistakes and we all made a lot of mistakes who knows if we maybe hire the wrong person or whatever it might be i'm sure i made a million mistakes but you know, as long as you learn from them, and again, you know, working for someone like Mike Kaiser and and Jim Seeley from Kemper Sports, you know, these are people that have lived and learned and made mistakes and been successful. So as long as you learn from your mistakes and move on and improve them, I think everyone was okay with that. It was okay to make a mistake. The course architect of Bannon Dunes is David Kidd, and the symmetry of Mike Kaiser taking a chance on David Kidd, who is, was in his late 20s uh, at the time that he designed Bandon, relatively an unknown. And he also took a chance on you because you were going out there and you were, were working at Kemper, but the credentials that you had going into it, that you had maybe never done something on this scale before. So the, the symmetry of him kind of taking a chance on these two guys who had this passion for golf, I think is really interesting. And now at Sand Valley, you got David Kidd, working on the second 18 there and you're president of Kemper sports. The, the symmetry of that 20 years later, I think is, I think is really cool. Yeah. And I, you know, I would add, well, a couple things, you know, as you bring up sand Valley, it's really neat for me and I'm sure for David, as, as we've talked about it, you know, to be working with Mike's sons, Michael and Chris Kaiser now, uh, you know, much more closely at, uh, at sand Valley. So that's been really neat. And I think, you know, going back to the beginning with David and I, we were both 28 years old, you know, but Mike, you know, takes calculated risks. Both of us grew up in the golf business. I mean, David's father, Jimmy Kidd, is one of the famed greenskeepers from Scotland. You know, I grew up working at golf courses. My dad, you know, has been in the golf business, started Kemper Sports. So neither of us quite had the level of experience that maybe for the job that Mike put us in, but we both grew up in the business. So it was, like I said, kind of a calculated risk, which was really neat. And it is, it's so neat to be working with David again and, you know, working for Mike and working for Michael and Chris, it's, it's a lot of fun. And hopefully we can be, you know, as successful at Sand Valley as we've been at Bandon. And Mike, Mike Kaiser is really interesting to me because he has, he sees, greatness and these places that you might not necessarily think to look and the Oregon coastline up at Cap up at Cabot uh, in Nova Scotia and he's done the same at Sand Valley in the middle of Wisconsin and you've kind of been with him for the whole ride so I think you're pretty well equipped to give an answer because Mike does he's not very uh he doesn't make a lot of bold claims he doesn't have a lot of stories that are written about him he's not in front of the camera a lot so what do you think it is about Mike that sets him apart? Well, I think Mike has an amazing way of boiling things down to keep them really simple. I, well, I, you know, first and foremost, back up a little bit, you know, he, he knows what a good site for golf is. You know, he would simply tell you, well, if you're, you know, someone who's hiking and you're in a really beautiful place, that would probably make a good golf course. Now there's more to it than that, but he has a nice way of keeping things simple. He's, um, 
you know, now has a reputation where people are coming to him with these great sites to see if they make sense as a golf course. And so he's getting to look at a lot of different sites, you know, around the world, frankly. And he's got an incredible eye for that. And then he's got a great eye for really a, you know, a business sense, how to make it work. And so I think that, you know, that's what separates him. I think he's got an incredible eye for what makes great golf. And he's got an incredible mind for how to make it successful. So think, think, thinking back to your approach about how you spread the word about Bandon, that there are these great details about you sent greeting cards to golf writers and club presidents instead of these fancy press releases. And that's obviously what, what Kaiser knew was greeting cards. So that, that makes sense. And, but a, a lot has changed in the world and technology and media in the two decades between Bandon and Sand Valley's respective openings. And so I'm curious, how did your approach change in kind of getting the word out and letting people know about Sand Valley in 2017 in this digital age that we live in compared to in 97 when you're sending out greeting cards and uh, you're, I mean, it's a, a different world pretty much. So in kind of what ways uh, have you approached it differently with Sand Valley? You know, it, it's, it, we were actually just talking about this the other day that how fast Band and Dunes grew. And there was no Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snap, anything. And how fast it really took off. And it was really, you know, word of mouth and, you know, third-party endorsements from, from media. And it took off really fast. In terms of our approach... Our approach hasn't changed. You know, we think Sand Valley, and, I, you know, I could say Streamsong Black as well, and when we were opening Cabot Links, and, you know, we think the golf is very special. So really focusing on the visuals that you have, um, potentially with as few words as possible, um, really getting out. Now, of course, there's a lot more avenues to do that now, you know, again, we were we wanted to send a postcard because we wanted a beautiful picture of Band of Dunes to get in front of people, and that's what we want now. But it's just obviously a lot easier to do it now. So, in a Chicago Tribune story that I read, it said back in 2012, you were sent out to scout the the property in Rome, Wisconsin, where Sand Valley sits, and you were reporting back to Mike Kaiser. Five years later you have this golf course that is set to op open there with another 18 in the works. Uh, so can you kind of take us behind the curtain a little bit to what goes in to when you see the property to when the public is playing it this summer for the first time? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we, we were fortunate to have a young man named Craig Haltham uh, from Madison, Wisconsin, you know, give Mike a call and tell him that he felt he had some property that was, pretty good for golf and you know mike was nice enough to call me and ask me to go look at it and which i did i met craig there and you know it didn't take very long being on site to say wow this is there's no property like this in the midwest there's just nothing like it there were thousands of acres of massive prehistoric sand dunes um i had never seen anything like it so that was 
you know, that was, I had to go back and tell Mike, you know, I don't know whether this is good news or not, but I think you're going to like it. <laughs> and, you know, so I think he waited till the spring and I think that was pretty late in the season. He might've waited to the spring and then went out and of course agreed with, with Craig, who's the one who found the property. Um, and from there, you know, there's a lot, so many factors that go into how fast or slow you're going to be able to do something there. You know, what, what's the permitting and approval process and, um, all that stuff. And things have gone very smoothly. I mean, that, that area realized quickly that this could be a really good thing for the area. So the state of Wisconsin and, the county and the town of Rome, Wisconsin, have been very supportive. So we've been on a pretty, you know, it's been a good schedule. Uh, and then building building golf on sand is it's the easiest place to build golf. I and mean, many of the greatest golf courses in the world are built on sand, and there's a number of reasons for that, but it makes sense to build on them. They drain well. You can have firm turf. Um, of course, visually, when you have open sand, it's it's beautiful with the contrast with the grass and the sky. And so, you know, we were able to, to move pretty quickly. And, you know, Mike hired Bill and Ben. And, you know, if, if Bill Kors uh, not the best in the business, he's, he's right up there. Um, an incredible talent. And to match him with that type of site, you know, is extremely exciting. I think it's great responsibility, which which Mike Kaiser and Bill Corr have no problem taking on at this point. But it's a huge responsibility, and I, you know, I think Bill and Ben have just nailed it. And um, Craig's company has been the construction company. They've built it. They've done a wonderful job. Uh, we're happy to be you know, part of the pre-opening and operations. And uh, we've got a great team, a great site, and I think we've built a great golf course. And as you said, you know, the second one is is well underway. Um, there will be some preview play on David's course next year, and then it'll open uh, – or I should – there'll be preview play this year, 2017, and then it'll open in 2018. So we're excited to get two golf courses. We've got overnight rooms already, which are – extremely comfortable it has this incredible kind of midwestern it's rustic but it's really nice and it it you know it feels like camp you go sit around the camp you know the the fire pit and the campfire and tell stories and then you go out and play this great golf the next day it's got a really neat feel to it we're very excited about it i mean the the early photos of it look look like that is justified um so I, I guess this is a good problem to have, but do you feel like with the way that Kemper has grown, that Mike Kaiser's name has grown, getting Core Crenshaw, did you feel like you were under the magnifying glass a little bit more with the Sand Valley project specifically? Yeah, I think we feel that way with every project. I mean, you know, every project is different. Kemper Sports is unique that way. We are we are not a one size fit all company and you know even sand valley with the the same owners and same architects it's different we have to look at things a little differently and we have to do what's right for this site for the midwest we're going to draw from different places 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I think we feel we're always we're under the microscope every day. We're, we we're successful, you know, one cheeseburger at a time, one round <laughs> of golf at a time, you know, one made bed at a time, one happy customer at a time. So uh, we're under the microscope all the time. On any list of uh, the best new courses that our listeners might read, Kemper has a lot of properties all over it. We've we've talked about Sand Valley, Stream Song Black by Gil Hance is set to open down in Florida. We've got another Hance course, Mossy Oak, that is now open in West Point. You've got Sylvie's Valley Ranch, which is a, a really cool reversible course that's in eastern Oregon that also set to open this year. Big Cedar Lodge in Missouri has the Gary Player short course that has a core Crenshaw that's coming next year, I think. So in a time where everyone is kind of wringing their hands about the future of golf, you guys are out here just putting these great golf courses kind of stretch across the United States uh, to boil it down. Like what what's what is your secret to be thriving in kind of this climate that we're in in golf where everyone seems to be worried? Yeah, well, I think I think a couple things. I mean, if you you know talking specifically about the openings, you know, I don't. I think we've opened uh, as a company well over thirty golf courses. I think in the last ten years or so, when you know post recession and with the golf slowdown and the and the uh, shrinking demand and all that, but you know, it's really how our company was born. It's it's interesting, you know. Our company was really born, you know, out of a public relations company. We were a PR company, and then my so my dad had started a PR company, and he started the golf company to build Kemper Lakes and take Kemper Lakes out of the ground. And at that time, Kemper Lakes was pretty innovative. It got some great publicity. It opened in 1979, hosted a PGA championship in 1989. It's still one of only a very few number of public, uh, or maybe it was the first or something public to, to host the PGA championship. And, you know, so our company was sort of born out of opening these properties. And it's really two, two skills that came to combine. It was first the public relations where we, you know, are able to, we promote the golf course way more than we promote our brand. Our brand is just a back of the house brand. We weren't trying to promote Kemper sports at that time. Kemper insurance named the course Kemper lakes. And it was okay with us. If no one knew Kemper sports was there, we just wanted to do the best we could do for Kemper lakes. And we've carried that forward with really every property. Uh, that we've opened. It's all about the property. It's about our owners. They're the ones with the vision. We're just helping carry out their vision. So really that's in our DNA, putting the golf course and the client first. And the second part is we have always felt that customer service differentiates us. And even in this time of, you know, uh, demand going down, oversupply in golf. We know there's too many golf courses. We know they're starting to close, and we know that the, you know, the, the demographics and psychographics of people these days are changing. And so golf, there's you know some less demand for golf. You can't argue it. Um, I mean, I could also go on to tell you why today is the best time to be a golfer, but <laughs> you know, 
customer service at this time, we feel even differentiates us more. So if we can sort of open these golf courses, build a great brand, and differentiate ourselves with great service, I mean, I'd say if there is, I know you use the word secret sauce. I'm not sure it's secret or it's just hard work and it's in our DNA. It's, it's what we do. Well, I feel like if it was a secret, it's not a secret anymore. That, <laughs> but I mean, it is. It is just basic because you. I mean, you definitely spell it out that when whenever I've been able to go to some of these places, or when you talk to anyone on our staff that's been out there, that it is something that you notice that you notice the service, and that I think is something that people may even like if they go on a trip to one of these properties, they come home that they. You know, it, there's so much about the golf course, but they aren't necessarily going to talk about that spike mark on the 15th green. They're going to talk about the really cool caddy master that they ran into or someone in the pro shop that kind of worked worked out changing of the tee time or something like that. And that those experiences, I feel, stick with people when they come back, maybe more so than the individual shot by shot or necessarily anything that happens on the course, the hospitality is kind of a great tenant to kind of put your flag there that you're going to put the people first and the golf first. So I feel like you can't go wrong with that combination. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's what our company was born out of that. You know, my father, our founder, those were his two, they were his traits. You know, you look at some companies that are even older than ours, we're going to be 40 year old company here soon. Um, and, you know, my father is still involved on a on less of a basis, but he's still involved. But really, those traits have carried through all the way to today. I mean, they're more important than ever. And we've had some, you know, similar successes. Chambers Bay, uh, we opened, and within some number of years, it was hosting a U.S. Open. And, you know, it's just like you say, I mean, those two traits, the trying to you know, build the best reputation we can for the facilities. And then once we get people there, giving them the best possible service we can give them. Those started in our, in our company in 1978, and they're still vital to our success today. So you said you could argue that there's never been a, a better time to be a golfer. And I totally agree with that, that everyone is talking about the the game and everyone seems to have this like negative pall over the game. But really, and even just to boil it down to, to courses, since that's what we're talking about here, you have the golden age of golf architecture with Tillinghast, Donald Ross, Alistair McKenzie and from like 1910 to the late 30s. And I think there's an argument to be made that we're in kind of a, a a rebirth of that with all of the great architects that we have going now that you guys have worked so much with Core Crenshaw, Kid, uh, Gil Hans, you have Mike DeVries, you have all these and Tom Doak, you have all these guys that are making new golf courses within, you know, ever since 2000, like you look at the modern rankings list, there are a ton of great properties that have developed just since 2000. And so I think you could argue that there's never been a better time to be a golfer because they're opening quality over quantity, which is a mistake that I think was made in the the boon where there are just courses being developed just because. And now there's courses that are being developed for a specific reason. Yeah, I'd say, you know, that's that's been my... Uh belief you know now for the last several years and it's 
it's not only that the courses today, and I'll just correct a little bit what you said. You're 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 right on. The, the courses today are being built for golf reasons because they're great golf. They were being built uh, for several other reasons before. They were being built to sell homes. They were being built. You know, it used to be that they would tell you find a site near as many people as you can because it's the only way we're going to get a feasibility study that will tell the bank to loan you money. So mm-hmm. let's find big metropolitan areas and find sites. doesn't matter if they have high tension wires or clay or rock or whatever. Let's go build them. Today, they're being built for the right reasons, which is I think this can be a great golf course. So golfers benefit from that. But, but the list goes on. I mean, the equipment that we have now in golf has never been better and continues to get better. Um, the instruction today is so much better and more affordable with things the PGA of America has done, like Get Golf Ready, mm-hmm. where you would get five lessons for $99. Um, or the Junior Golf League, which is now, you know, there's always been great junior programs for the elite junior players. But, you know, now as an industry, we've woken up and said, you know, it's not all about the elite players. Let's have this Junior Golf League where they get to wear uniforms and they play a scramble. We are seeing that grow at all of our properties um, because most most of us, you know, didn't play elite golf as kids. Now, maybe many people in the industry did, but most golfers, they weren't necessarily elite junior players. But if they had an opportunity to go out with their friends and play a scramble, you know, those are the kind of things that really get you into the game more fun. So the instruction's gotten better. The program's gotten better. The equipment's gotten better. The golf courses have gotten better. Um you know, the research the USGA has put into the game, making uh, strides that, you know, they look way into the future on things like water use and, you know, what's the best way to maintain these golf courses. And, you know, Pinehurst has been a great leader in that. We all saw what they did, uh, bringing their golf course kind of back to what it once was and reducing the water use. And, I mean, it's just, Again, these things all are affecting the golfer in such a great way. Um, and then maybe one of the biggest of all for golfers, you know, this oversupply of golf courses has made it much more affordable to play. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, not all of, you know, not all the courses can do that. But when you go into a market, I mean, look at think, these, uh, you know, third-party tee time sellers and this oversupply green fees now have gone down for golfers and you can find great deals to play great public golf. So, you know, you add that all up and you say, this is an amazing time to be a golfer. I'm definitely of that mindset. I was reading some stuff before the interview and I saw that golf Inc magazine has their annual ranking of the most powerful people in golf. And you alongside the Kemper CEO, Steve Skinner have slowly been creeping up those rankings that you were 12th, then 11th and 9th and their most recent list up to number four in their in their most recent one, which is one spot ahead of Mike Kaiser. But I, I don't want to create any controversy there. But so their, so their list aside, who do you think the most powerful person in golf is today? You know, I, I mean, there's a few you could choose from. I mean, I think Mike Davis uh, would be up there and um, – Pete Bavacqua and, you know, the new, of course, the new commissioner of the PGA Tour as well. Um, 
you know, so I think those those types of people have uh, sort of a much bigger influence on the game. I mean, being the, the leader of all the PGA professionals, I mean, the PGA professionals are, are the ones that, uh, you know, really spend the time with the, with the golfers. They're the ones, you know, on their feet all day at the golf courses, giving lessons, getting people into the game, you know? So I think, uh, those CEOs of the big organizations, and of course the PGA Tour is what we all watch every week. And so I'd say people like that are the most sort of powerful people in in golf. I mean, I think it's very golf Inc. is very nice to include us on that list. And there, you know, that magazine is more kind of geared toward the management companies and owners. You know, I've seen some other lists that maybe don't have as much of the management company people on it, and that's that's okay, too. So I guess that would be my answer to that. With Davis and Bavacqua and even Keith Pelly on the Euro Tour, that they're at least all guys that have the the mindset of they're trying to modernize the game. They're trying to grow the game. And even if some of the stuff they're doing, some of it may hit, like some of it may not hit, but at least they're trying, and they all kind of are pushing in the same direction, which I think is, I think is great for golf. And they're, they're guys that grew up in the game too, you know, that whether as, as caddies or, um, good players, um, you know, I know Pete started out as a, as a caddy and Mike Davis has been playing golf all his life and was a good competitive golfer, uh, through high school and college. And, so, you know, they've got the game, they've got the game's best interests at hand and uh, you know, the game is in good hands right now. So, I have just some some few quick hitting questions just to wrap up here that I I read in a, a Q&A that you had listed uh the great course architect Seth Rayner as part of your dream foursome. If you had to pick one template hole to name as your favorite, uh do you have a specific one that comes to mind? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, I love par three, so I mean, if I if I was gonna have a hole in one, I think I'd love it to be on a Redan. I like that. Just kind of kind of curve it in from right to left, and have it just kind of sling it around the hill. Exactly, and just be able to. If you could be able to see it go in, sometimes the yeah. left you couldn't. But walking up and over and not seeing a ball after you hit a perfect shot—that would be that's my dream shot right there. Yeah. Uh, so if you had ten rounds at Bandon for a week, how would you divide them up over the uh, over the courses that you have out there? I I would be upset playing any one of those golf courses, but it would include at least one round on the preserve. Uh, for sure, um, you know, and Bandon Dunes is always going to be near and dear to my heart. Uh, you know, it was the first course we opened out there. It was a course that got such rave reviews that you know allowed us to continue to build golf courses out there. And um, so I'd probably, you know, the the tenth would be in the afternoon, and I'd be trying to hit that sixteenth green as the sun was going down. <laughs> I like and, that. Uh, that would be the, you know, let's call it the, whatever, that would be the 70th hole of the day. And um, it would be right there at Bandon Dunes. So what, what is the, what is the most amount of holes that you, that you've played in, in one day out there? 
I think it's only 72. I don't think only only 72. <laughs> well, there was one, I, there was one group in the solstice that went on and played the preserve. And oh gosh, 85 holes. <laughs> I couldn't. I, I I hate to admit this. I couldn't <laughs> get myself to go do it, but there was a group, and one of them was Grant Rogers. So I don't know if you met. Oh yeah, he carried his bag. <laughs> oh god, he carried his bag. That and he's, that's wild. He's a lot older than me too, so I hate to admit that, but <laughs> I think the most I've done is seventy-two. Well, that's that's uh that's plenty. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of golf. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, the the last thing uh, we'll kind of bring it full circle. We talked about the last round of golf you played. Where is the next round of golf that that you have your eye on? Uh, well, you know what? I'll tell you what. The weather has been so good in Chicago that we were, we had uh, our, some of our, we managed probably about, I think 15 courses in Chicago and we've had many of them open. So I'm looking forward to another one of these warm early spring days, which we don't get very often. And we're probably going into the Glen club where we have the flag sticks in the ground and going to play a warm uh, day of golf in March. Maybe a St. Paddy's Day round. Oh, that's the nice. Glen Club. Have some green beer. That would be fun. <laughs> well, I uh, I hope you get uh, a hole-in-one on Everdan out there, if they have one out there. But I'm sure you take a hole-in-one wherever it comes. Uh, I look forward to it. Hopefully you and I get a chance to play together. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate the uh, the invite cause I'm looking out the window now, and it is still snowing in New York City, so golf in the Northeast uh, doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon. But for all of us at the Golf.com podcast, we appreciate you listening. If you uh, like what you heard, you can definitely subscribe in iTunes or anywhere you listen to your podcast. I'm your host, Coleman McDowell, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.